You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, ain't shit going on. Ain't shit going on. And this time, we're serious about that. Yeah. They're really, really hashtag ain't shit going on. We really thought. We asked ourselves the hard question, is there shit going on? The only answer we came up with was no. No shit whatsoever. shit. Did something happen to my chair? What happened to my chair here? Uh, I don't think anything. I mean, that might not be the same chair you always sit in, but... What are you trying to pull? I lowered it so that my own dominance would be more clear. This is some real Donald Trump stuff. Next, you're going to pull me in for an awkward handshake. That's right. I didn't wash my hands after I used the bathroom. You don't know that, but think of the superiority it gives me. I feel like maybe in the week that has passed between last week's podcast and this, maybe you and your kids were playing around, maybe you broke the chair, maybe you thought, all right, hey, we'll just set it up, we'll have Ben sit in it, it will collapse at some comedic, comedically perfect time during the recording of the podcast, and we'll all get a big laugh out of it, make him look like an asshole. That would be awesome. I wish that I had that kind of foresight. Did you notice the uh, four new children's chairs that are over here? Huh. That I went to a... Uh, a super church here in the area to buy after my wife, uh, I don't know if you know this, my wife uh, has a little bit of a Craigslist dependency. She's uh, constantly buying shit off Craigslist, and this weekend <laughs> she bought these four orange plastic little kid. They basically look like elementary school chairs. You would find them in a daycare yeah. or something like that. She bought them from a church, so on Sunday morning I had to go over to this church and pick them up, but not then before I was treated to, I would say, 10 or 15 minutes uh, worth of band practice from the oh, uh, nice. the six-piece musical outfit that apparently entertains people over at this uh, this super church so it was here like in Missoula. Hip church. Yeah. Oh yeah, big time. Uh we're talking 20-foot cross on the stage, uh, a bunch of dudes in cargo shorts up there practicing their uh their uh contemporary Christian rock that they were going to uh entertain the folks with. Did you feel pulled to the into the fold? Well, you know, you being, a, you being an experienced band drummer like you are, did, did a part of you feel like, you know what, maybe this is the end I've been waiting for? I thought about it. I thought about jumping up there and uh, getting behind the skins, the bonus tubs, and showing what I could do. Uh, weirdly enough, my wife and I had just watched Spotlight the night before, uh-huh. uh, so it gave a kind of a, a different vibe to me being suddenly in a house of worship. I see. Empty, dimly lit, <laughs> sitting in the very back you, row. You felt vulnerable, perhaps? A little bit vulnerable. Ben, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by MMA Pack, the subscription box service just for MMA fighters and fans. By now, I'm sure you guys are starting to figure out how this works. It sounds like a cool company started by a cool guy named Jeremy who reached out to us a few weeks ago. All you do is you go to MMAPack.com to sign up, and then for just $39 a month, they'll start sending you a box full of around $100 worth of MMA clothes, gear, supplements, and etc accessories in the mail uh these boxes go out on the first of every month and inside them will be a bunch of stuff we think you'll like that's right chad the people who run mma pack have scored a pretty impressive haul of stuff to put in the boxes they mailed out recently we're talking about t-shirts shorts and hoodies from top mma brands like roots of fight to tommy nuaza gameness as well as training equipment and accessories like hand wraps energy gel protein powder and supplements 
The stuff in the individual boxes is always changing, but if you're a fan who likes to stay geared up, this sounds a pretty cool way to do it, and to stay inside your budget as well. Yeah, keeping yourself draped in the latest MMA fashions can cost a pretty penny, as I bet nearly everybody who's listening to this right now well knows. More good news on that front, too, because right now MMA Pack is offering a sweet introductory offer exclusively for our listeners. Just go to the website, MMAPack.com, that's spelled exactly the way it sounds, P-A-C-K in Pack, uh, and check out the particulars, and then you enter the promo code, CoMainEvent, that's all one word, to save 20% off your first pack uh you know we almost we were we talked briefly today jeremy and i from mma pack about getting some dundasso shirts in the next uh oh nice in the next mma pack and box, then keep telling people that's the last time they'll ever be in there it doesn't really unfortunately we don't it doesn't really work like that because we don't have like a stockpile of product we let cotton bureau handle that which is probably for the best because you know we would only abuse such a stockpile of product oh absolutely Absolutely. We you wouldn't would. be able to go into the truck stop down the street from your house here without seeing like every drifter wearing a Dundasso shirt, blowing his nose into a Dundasso uh, sweater vest. Uh, well, since their, their hashtag ain't shit going on this week, we've turned exclusively to the listeners. Uh, all the little co-maniacs out there uh, are going to write in this week with their listener mail. We, we got a, a good number of, uh, of mail, a good number of messages. Uh, we've done no prep for this. None. We don't even really know the questions that are coming. So it'll be a surprise to everyone. So we're just going to dive right in. Is that what we're doing? Sure. First question this week comes to us from Vern Russell. He writes, it looks like your girl Cyborg said, fuck this, and has vacated her Invicta FC featherweight title in hopes of getting a permanent spot in the UFC. Does the gamble pay off or will the UFC, or will the UFC get her a fight? Wait, I, yeah, that would be the, the, Gamble paying off, right? Yeah, I think it should be like and or. Okay. Well, the, what does the gamble pay off and will the UFC get her a fight? Yeah, well, I think Cyborg's at a point this uh, right now that she is popular enough and there is a lack of other popular female fighters to an extent that she's not, it's not like she's going to fuck up and we'll never hear from Cyborg again. Right. It's not like giving up the Invicta title and then she's going to go a few months without a fight uh, in the UFC or anywhere else and suddenly nobody cares about Cyborg anymore. That's probably not going to happen. So she's probably going to be okay. Yeah, like her last two fights obviously were in the UFC. She hasn't fought in Invicta, hasn't defended that title since uh, way back in January of 2016. Uh, it seemed to me like the ship has already sailed or had already sailed on cyborg going back to invicta even though uh she's pretty consistently up to this point at least given lip service to the idea that she wanted to do that to go back there and and defend that uh uh featherweight title that she has there uh i I mean i don't know how that would work i assume that the, the ufc has some kind of uh cyborg sharing deal with uh invicta but uh well the U ufc was paying cyborgs checks there for a while in invicta so right. i guess i'm just saying that like that cyborg uh vacating this Invicta title seems more like a, uh, I mean, I guess it's the, 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 the final nail in the coffin for the idea of her going back to Invicta, at least in the short term. Uh, but it seems like more of a perfunctory move to me. Like I figured we were kind of like that ship had sailed a little bit. Well, and it seems like the fair thing to do to Invicta and to the other Invicta fighters, because what's the point of you holding on to that when we all know at this point, uh, you're probably not going to have Cyborg fight on an internet stream. You know, no disrespect to the way Invicta is doing it. And, they, you know, they just had a fight card, put on some good fights. They always put on a good show. But 
Cyborg's popularity is such at this point that you know the UFC is going to look to leverage it for more than just a few Fight Pass subscribers. Do you think this was a fully Chris Cyborg deal that, that she wanted to vacate this title? Or do you think that Invicta, that Shannon Knapp put a call in and was like, hey, Chris Gion, if you're not going to come back here and you defend your title, how about uh, we just get Megan Anderson to fight and we'll see if we can uh, we can put the, the, the actual, the real, the full Invicta featherweight title on her well i don't know i mean it seems like the most logical thing to do because it also seems like if you can go ahead and start to establish uh you know another champion like your own invicta champion and then there's not any doubt about who the the featherweight champion invicta is and then the ufc can have its featherweight champion then you're laying the groundwork for having a fairly big fight in the future. Yeah. A champion versus champion thing where you can put two belts on the goddamn poster, and you know how much MMA promoters love that. Yeah, you just got to find someone who, uh, when the notion of a of a cyborg fight comes up, doesn't suddenly remember something else they got to do. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, man, I got a dentist appointment that yeah. day. Couldn't I, possibly. I was actually, yeah, I got, I'm actually auditioning uh, to get into Juilliard. So it's a big day for me. Yeah. I can't miss that one. Yes. And, uh, you know, if... If it turns out you continue to want to make that fight, that's when I'll let you know that I got into Juilliard, right. so it'll be a couple of years. They only give out so many bassoon scholarships right. every you, year. You got to jump on those. All right, next question, Ben. Uh, are we we're going to Eric Murphy's question next? Is that how you wanted to do this? Sure. Okay. Uh, from Eric Murphy, CME spirit animal Tanya Evinger ticked all the boxes on Saturday. She got the finish. It finished, said some cool shit while holding her belt, and then instantly put something hilarious and overtly sexual on Twitter. So an evening of being on brand as fuck. She's 10 in a row after Missouri, of all places, admitted that the ref done fucked up. So firstly, just talk about how awesome Tanya Evinger is. Secondly, if you were her manager, would you be whispering that she should start some beef with Betch Cohea? I feel like in the post-Rousey era of the women's bantamweight division, a fighter like Evinger could be a unique star. Invicta is an awesome organization, but I think she deserves more attention than Invicta can provide. Yeah, uh, this is a, well, I guess a couple of big wins in a row here for Tanya Evinger because first she got a state athletic, athletic commission to overturn, uh, her initial loss of that Invicta Bantamweight title, which yeah, is we, like, we all know how often that happens. Right, man. That's like touching a unicorn to get a, a state athletic commission to be like, yeah, okay. It's possible that someone in the severe of our employ kind of fucked up here. Like, let's run this back and do it again. Uh, then she goes out, uh, against Yana Kunitskaya and uh and gets the victory this past week at Invicta uh twenty two, uh the second round rear naked choke after uh fighting off what I believe the technical term would be a farmer's grip of uh of leg lock attempts. A butt load. A butt load, an absolute ass load there in the in the first round. Uh so I think there's a couple of different avenues here to talk about Tanya Evinger first in in how awesome she is which i think we can both agree she's pretty awesome and then like the likelihood that you would see her uh show back up in the ufc again after um she was on that season 18 of the ultimate fighter however briefly because she lost to raquel pennington uh but uh yeah i think two at this point with tanya evinger having won like nine or ten fights in a row i think two perfectly uh genuine channels of discussion we could have about her yeah the thing that I worry is that it seems like guys like you and me and Eric Murphy and the people really ensconced inside that MMA bubble recognize in Tanya Evinger, okay, here is a person who is awesome in a certain kind of way, but it's a kind of way that we are definitely into. Uh, she's hilarious even when it seems like she doesn't mean to be. She It feels like she's not really 
playing a character or anything. It seems like she's just being herself, maybe dialing up the volume on it, as Chael Sonnen likes to say. But it feels like it's really working. And a part of me worries, though, that it's in a way that the UFC is just blind to when it comes to female fighters especially. Because what we've seen from the UFC, like what they seem to like, what they seem to really seize on as promotable, um, is a certain kind of female fighter. Right. And, and that- Tanya Evinger rolling in there looking like she drove a big rig to the arena uh, and like she's going to go enjoy some delicious beef jerky snacks uh, at her post-fight party and down a few natural ices that doesn't seem like it's always the kind of thing that the UFC goes for. Right, and like that I think brings up uh, a discussion that I know we've had on this show before, but just the idea that uh, the UFC only seems to know one way right. to try to promote fights and to try to promote fighters. Uh, at least up until very recently, it has given the impression as an organization, as you said, of having a, a certain type of female fighter that it wanted to promote. and And Tanya Evinger while not fitting that mold, I think is a good example of a person that is kind of a throwback to the other conversation we were having a couple of weeks ago about where you uh, did the Ben Folks thing of looking for any excuse you could find to make a severe left turn swerve in the conversation and bring it back to Sage Northcutt. Oh, see, now you're doing it. You're bringing up Sage Northcutt. I'm doing you now. a favor here. Let the so record that, reflect. So Chad that, Dundas is the first one to bring up Sage Northcutt this week. This week, uh, so that you don't have to. But. I think it's it illustrates again like it's sometimes it's hard to tell the people that are going to be fan favorites in this sport. Yeah. I don't think it 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 always uh is logical. I don't think it's always predictable and certainly it it doesn't uh it's not the people that seem like shiny happy, happy corporate drones a lot of times that become fan favorites. It's people like the Diaz brothers, people like Tanya Evinger that that you know have some charisma and have some kind of unique spark to them that people can gravitate to. And the big question, I think, is is number one, whether the UFC recognizes that, and number two, whether it can and get a 35-year-old athlete in the cage before, uh, you know, her prime has, is over. Yeah, and that's the other thing, is it seems like she's having this surprising late career renaissance right now, and the MMA historian in me is waiting for the moment when that kind of falls off a cliff, because that's often how we've seen it go. And who knows, maybe... You know, she gets in the UFC and maybe the competition there proves to be a little bit tougher uh, or her style doesn't uh, play as well there against the, the competition they have. And she just doesn't end up doing nearly as well. But I, it does seem like you've reached a point here where you got to try. you got to find out because that's how this relationship has seemed like it's working in almost every other instance is where somebody somebody becomes an Invicta standout. Then the UFC snatches them up once Invicta has put all the heavy lifting into building up their name. Huh. Yeah. And clearly it's like Tanya Evinger has uh, tapped into something that fans are into. Like, and I understand how the UFC might feel like, hey, you know, you can't take absolutely everybody that Invicta builds up. And in you got you to leave them something. And Invicta has proven really good at, you know, they'll build up something to replace the something that you take. But with Tanya Evinger, I feel like. It just would be a real shame if you keep her in Invicta forever, never give her a shot in the UFC, because at some point it's just going to be a downer for both sides. Because how many people can Invicta even come up with for her to fight anymore? The fresh competition is in the UFC, and the UFC could use somebody like this. They could use somebody who brings a little bit different of an appeal uh, and brings injects a little fresh blood into the women's bantamweight division, especially right now. Yeah, now that the uh, the Ronda Rousey era 
is presumably over, certainly at the top. We don't know if she'll be back at all. And I'm going to agree with you, especially since in instances like what we see, what we saw with Kelvin Gastelum uh, landing this Anderson Silva fight, uh, new UFC management uh, and, you know, the new UFC matchmaking team has given some sign recently that it is a little bit suggestible that if you go out there and you're Kelvin Gastelum and you're like, hey, Legends ass whooping to her. How about Anderson Silva? Maybe they will be like, yes, we will take you up on that. So if you're Tanya Evinger, maybe the best thing you could do right now is, as you said, you call out a Betch Cohea or an Alexis Davis who you have two losses to previous in your career. And you could say, let me get that back. Same with Sarah McMahon, who I believe also beat Tanya Evinger back in the day. Uh, you started looking up, up and down this women's bandwagon top 15. And there, there are a number of people that I feel like Tanya Evinger could could set her sights on and maybe, you know, without, w- w- without like begging or kissing the ring to get in the UFC could yeah. like make an opportunity for herself by saying, you know, Ra- Raquel Pennington knocked me out of the ultimate fighter. Now she's number four in the, in the women's bantamweight division. How about we do the damn thing over again? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Eric Murphy's idea was the be- calling out Beth Cohea, which I think that one honestly kind of writes itself. Yeah. If you're Tanya Evinger, you get on the mic and you say like, Hey, it's bullshit that I'm not in the UFC because look at Betch Cohea who absolutely fucking sucks. I would beat her. Um, and I would deny everybody, including myself, the opportunity to, uh, enjoy her overly sexualized post fight dance when she thinks she's won. And that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make because that's how badly I want to go in there and beat somebody in the UFC. Boom. There you go. Next question this week comes to us from El Sexy Grande, which okay. not his given name, his or her given name. That means, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, the Sexy Grande. Yeah, and when I when I look at it, I feel like saying sexy, right? <laughs> okay. El Sexy Grande. Don't fight it. Yeah. He or, I mean, it says El Sexy Grande, so I'm going to assume it's a he, writes uh, Cyborg versus Rousey in a WWE ring? Please provide rhetoric. Now, Ben, this is obviously a referral to what I took as uh, a throwaway tweet from Chris Cyborg challenging Ronda Rousey to go find herself a tag team partner and meet her in a professional wrestling ring uh, because Chris Cyborg was rolling around a little bit in the squared circle uh, recently. And, wearing uh, jeans. Wearing jeans. So maybe from the, from the look of the video, it looked like she was wearing jeans. That's your first tip that maybe she didn't put in a full day uh, <laughs> of taking bumps. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, WWE loves to jump on, especially now when every single fucking professional wrestling person in the world basically tacitly admits that mixed martial arts is way cooler than professional wrestling, uh, by themselves being enormous MMA marks, uh, WWE will is always down to bring in Ronda Rousey or Conor McGregor or whoever is the star of the moment in, in MMA. Uh, I don't know if you go so far as to try to get rousey and cyborg out there i mean wrestlemania is next week so you kind of missed the boat on setting that up for this this year uh but uh i don't know man it seems like it would draw money but uh well i guess we'll have to see how how suggestible the wwe is well see if you could get everybody to play their roles right the way you do this one as a tag team is you just play it up as if rousey really is terrified of cyborg and so then you just do the dance where they can't quite get in there at the same time. Rousey keeps tagging out and everything, and then you build to that big moment where finally it's just Cyborg and Rousey in there. Who's the heel here, though? 
Uh, I mean, it could be fluid. It could be a fluid situation. You just go with you. You're going to plan it out once you get out there. We'll just Ric Flair style. We'll, we'll figure it out once we just get out. Just read the crowd. Yeah, I like there it. There you go. Man. I like it. Um. Okay, this one comes from Josh Montgomery, who asks. My question this week is probably better suited for Dave Meltzer, um, which, okay, that's a good way to start your question. This is by letting us know that we are probably not the right people to answer it and that you should have written to a different podcast entirely. Uh, or maybe the CME analytics correspondent you guys have on the payroll crunching numbers at MIT. Uh, yeah, we'll get uh, Steve, I believe is his name. We'll get right to Steve on this. Uh, what do you think is the more rewarding for a fight company, a 100,000 buy rate on pay-per-view or a Grand Slam TV rating that rivals or beats the all-time records? feel like we might be talking about Bellator right now. <laughs> that is a question probably better directed to Dave Meltzer because clearly most of the money is in pay-per-view. It's not an accident that that uh, Combat Sports' prime revenue driver is, is pay-per-view and that you put all of the biggest fights that you have on pay-per-view uh, because when you can score a big pay-per-view buy rate, obviously that brings in more money traditionally than um, a, a widely watched television broadcast. I am not sure, and I suppose it depends on any number of factors, including overhead and whatever kind of split you have to have with the pay-per-view provider. I don't know how many pay-per-views you have to sell to be profitable. Uh, I would think 100,000 would be close to that line. It would be a nice round number, wouldn't it? Uh, it's also, isn't that the rumored uh, buy rate of the... Only so far, Bellator pay-per-view was about 100000 Right, yeah, that was Meltzer's estimate, and then Dana White came out and, and said that he heard that it didn't sell that many. So take both sides of that argument for what they're worth. I would probably come down more on the Dave Meltzer side yeah. of things <laughs> than the uh, than the Dana White side of things. Uh, do we have a Bellator pay-per-view question coming later in the show? I guess we don't really even know, but that seems like a, a good topic of conversation because obviously they did just put the uh, Chael Son and Vanderlei Silva uh, fight on pay-per-view. Um, maybe well, we can hold off on that for the time being. We, we, it's possible we'll run into a question about it. My, uh, my guess, and again, you have to ask Big Dave for the confirmation on this, but my guess it would be pay-per-view. Well, the, I think one of the things that complicates things further is that, uh, it's one thing if you're the UFC and it's a choice between pay-per-view or a great TV ratings thing with a TV partner who you already have like a long-term deal with. Um, because yeah, I mean, you want to keep your TV partner happy and everything, but it's not like it's making a huge difference for you in, if you're in year like five of an eight year deal or something where if you do a huge smash ratings hit, that is just kind of a one-off, right. like they're going to be pleased about it and everything, but it's not necessarily going to help you when it comes time to the new contract, which we know is one thing that the USC is looking at. And I'm sure, I think we do have a question about this. that's coming up that, you know, with that, deal with Fox set to expire soon and the UFC hoping for a huge deal, really banking on a huge deal later, then that's when you really do want to, that's when the ratings are going to start to matter for you. Right. But then if you're, if you're Bellator, the other side of that is that you are owned by the TV company at this point. So there is like a little more incentive to go out there and do huge ratings on just regular TV than there is, you know, if you think that your pay-per-view is not going to do that great. Right. And I suppose the obvious point to make is that it's, it's a different situation for Bellator again, just because, uh, the reason that the UFC is on pay-per-view all the time is that the UFC can consistently make a lot of money on pay-per-view. I don't know that we know that the Bellator product can do that yet, because I think it stands to reason that if Bellator could be out here making money hand over fist doing pay-per-views, it would be because right. 
why not? So yeah, it's it's interesting, and and the uh, the Chael Son and Vanderlei Silva pay per view is going to be interesting for a lot of different reasons, not just that one. But I, I like it'll be interesting to see who finally ends up in it by the time it rolls around. Yeah, because it's not going to be those guys. This is, might be There's a no strike way. force heavyweight Grand Prix type situation where you're going to want to have multiple alternates standing by, ready just, to take over. And we can all go ahead and start planning out which alternate versus alternate matchup is <laughs> the best one. Next question this week comes from R. Bleasy. It's kind of a long one, so uh, buckle up. He writes, I was listening to Brendan Schaub on my second favorite uh, podcast, The Fighter and the Kid, because CME for life. What? And he mentioned how after Jones versus Gustafson, an incredible fight by any standard, he saw John Jones vomiting in the back from the pain and later being wheeled out on a stretcher while shaking. We all saw his face that night, but hearing that was difficult for some reason. I don't know if I'm an old school fan. Or not. I remember watching uh, a few fights, but the this shit is fucking awesome light going off in my head was when I saw Anderson Silva doing brutal combat magic all over Chris Lieben after his roughneck strategy didn't quite pan out. Uh, I've been a hardcore fan ever since then and have seen some shit. Frank Mir popping Big Nog's arm, Cain Velasquez recreating his best childhood slip and slide memory in the blood of Bigfoot Silva and others, uh, but this was the first time I felt unsavory for my fandom. Maybe it was the vivid, somber way Schaub described the harsh reality of the fight game, but it left me deeply conflicted about this sport we love. How do you all recognize these moments as fans and journalists who cover MMA professionally discourse? Uh, ben, I remember one time I was credentialed at Sport Fight, uh, and it was the first time I'd ever been backstage at an MMA show after it was over, and I was taken aback by the carnage the sheer carnage back there and granted this wasn't a big time show this was more like you know an independent level mma promotion uh but it seems like after the adrenaline had worn off and the swelling had begun there was some ugly shit going on in the back of this dressing room including like three or four dudes and these were guys who had won their fights mind you not even lost uh but trying to put together a carpool to the hospital there was like <laughs> oh, wow. four, four guys that were trying to uh they were all going to ride together over to the emergency room to get checked out. Uh, and, that, I, and I feel the same as, uh, as Mr. Bleasy here. It was, a, it was a sobering moment for me. And uh, to me, it just reminds me that this is like kind of a brutal physical sport. And there is a, a great physical toll that is paid a lot of the times by these athletes. And to me, that's a reminder not to sugarcoat things not to uh fall into the, some of the rhetorical traps that i think are easy to to fall into in this sport because uh you kind of have to give the athletes that compete in this sport both the respect i think they deserve for doing a, a dangerous job that doesn't pay as well as some of the other professional sports but also like uh you kind of owe it to them in my opinion to to for lack of a better term keep it real yeah because I feel like you're almost doing them a disservice uh, if you, you know, get on your podcast or write stories that just kind of gloss over the surface or. Uh... Well, I mean, sometimes one of the things that I see that ends up glossing over the surface, even though it doesn't really mean to, is the kind of blanket like lionization of like, oh, these guys are warriors and they go out there and they lay it all on the line right. and they sacrifice all this stuff. And, you know, and. It just it deadens the language through overuse to the point where it doesn't really mean anything anymore. All that stuff just becomes regular fight world cliches, and you don't think about what it actually means. One of the things that, for me, hammered that point home was I did a story, I think, like last year about 
how much it sucks to have a broken jaw. Basically, like one of those injuries that a lot of people will never ever deal with just because they their line of work does not take them into that many instances where you might get your jaw broken, but is not an uncommon injury for fighters to deal with. And that the weeks of like aftermath will kind of drive you crazy uh, in ways that other injuries might not. And talking to a bunch of guys who had gone through that and realizing that, you know, when something like that happens, normally what will happen is a guy, he'll, he'll break his jaw in a fight, usually lose that fight. You'll hear about it. You know, you'll hear afterwards maybe, oh, that guy suffered a broken jaw along with, you know, probably a few other injuries. You'll, you'll see his name show up on the medical suspensions list. And then that's it. Like next week rolls around. There's probably a next fight next weekend. Uh, you don't hear from that guy for a few months. So he just kind of fades into the background of your memory. And you don't realize that that means for like the next six weeks, that guy is sitting around with his jaw wired shut, uh, drinking his meals through a straw and kind of slowly going insane. Uh, like I think it was Cub Swanson who put it that every morning you wake up with your jaw wired shut, that's a shitty morning. Uh, and you don't really think about that. Uh, and that all those guys had also said that it's the kind of injury that makes you, gives you a lot of time to sit around and think about what am I doing? Is this worth it? Uh, and ultimately they all decided, sure it was, but yeah, like it's really easy for fans to just kind of like be like, okay, that's just, uh, an injury on the list moving on. Um, and yeah, I, I, I agree that you got to keep it real and you got to remind people sometimes of the specific uncomfortable facts of this sport. And the same thing, it's true of like sports like football in a lot of different ways. Like we don't see a lot of the, you know, the, the actual bodily injury and carnage that goes on behind the scenes in, in a, in a football game or with a football team. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but like it kind of drives me crazy on, uh, football broadcasts when you see a dude, like say a linebacker or a guy who's like, you know, six foot four, 245 pounds, a phenomenal athlete tough as nails and he suffers an injury even if it's not even a major one but suffers an injury in a football game where that human being cannot stand up like he's lying on the turf in obvious pain and the football announcer says something like oh we have a man shaken up on the play yeah. like they slow always to get up yeah, yeah slow to get up like man that is a, an enormous giant of an athlete who would kill almost anyone in the world and he cannot stand up right now and our response to it is oh shaken up on the play so that kind of drives me crazy. So I think the specific answer to this question of how to handle this as a, a professional or a fan that is involved in this sport is to not lose sight of those physical stakes, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, and there's probably a psychological reckoning to be had amongst just the fans and, and people who like this sport, that like one of the things you have to admit to yourself is that you like it uh, and not to dehumanize the the people that are in it and not let those physical stakes slip into the, you know, slip out of your attention. But also I think to support the causes of athletes, especially in this sport, who, as I said before, are doing this dangerous thing for not that much money. Uh, and to try to any way you can support the idea that those people should be better taken care of in a number of different ways. Yeah. And better taken care of, uh, especially in the long run, um, which football is much better at than MMA. Um, this one from the Cheeseburger Walrus. Okay. Our good friend, the Cheeseburger Walrus. And you are really skipping around on this list. Really? Yeah. I'm following the list. You, you're skipping around. Maybe we have different ordered lists here. It's possible. The Cheeseburger Walrus asks, just curious to get your take. Heard UFC has eyes and pocketbooks invested with Mackenzie Dern and a few other up-and-coming fighters. Seems smart. Invest in the talent and build them up before they get to the big dance. Gets me thinking. 
What would your thoughts be to UFC starting a somewhat amateur organization? All amateur rules, like no knees to the head, no elbows, etc. Aired on Fight Pass and we can see the talent go from literally the ground up. Gives them fresh new content and gives the younger and greener athletes a chance for exposure and to build their name brand, name slash brand early on. Yay or nay? Now this is an interesting concept. The kind that when I hear it all like laid out like that, I'm just kind of amazed the UFC hasn't done it already. Yeah. Um, and I, it also seems like a deeply troubling possibility to me, uh, mm -hmm. because my first question about something like this would be, what do you make those people sign in order to be a part of it? Because you can look at like the ultimate fighter, which is a, as close a, a thing like this as we currently have, uh, from the UFC. And it is notorious for getting fighters into the UFC on bad and kind of long, bad contracts. Where they're, You hear the guys complain about that all the time. Where they're just not paid very well. And it's a kind of quick avenue into the UFC, but it might be a bad deal for you long term. And I would have to have the same suspicions about this. Plus, you know, if you're airing it on Fight Pass and all this stuff, you're running this amateur league, which I guess means they're not being paid, but you're making money off of it. So it's basically like if the NFL owned college football, um, and then it starts to get even like ethically murkier than it already is. Yeah, it's actually a thing in a lot of ways that WWE has al already done to a certain extent because it has the uh, developmental contract uh, that it signs people to. And so, you know, the current uh, iteration of, of the WWE Developmental League is NXT, which a lot of hardcore professional wrestling fans actually prefer the product there to what you get on Monday Night Raw or SmackDown or whatever. Why is that? Uh, be, for a lot of different reasons. I think because it's more of a straight professional wrestling show rather than like the over-the-top... Not, not as many storylines Weird stuff. spectacle that nah. you get. Like, uh, you know, Raw and SmackDown are written by committee, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of people prefer NXT, but like from a contractual standpoint, like you were talking about, one of the other things that it allows WWE to do, less so now than when it first started because... Uh, independent wrestling is also having this big, you know, surge in popularity and there's tons of independent leagues, et cetera, et cetera. But like, it kind of allows WWE to create a vertical monopoly over the entire sport right. to the extent that it wants to. Because if you're a dude like, say, Matt Riddle, who we all know, former UFC fighter, who is currently a big time star on the independent circle, circuit, if WWE thinks you have great potential in the sport, it can go and sign a contract with you way before you're ready to debut on national television and it can send you to NXT to get uh, smartened up by all of the, uh, you know, trainers and performers that it has down there. So you basically, if there is a competing wrestling league, like say a TNA or, or you know, Japan or whatever, uh, those people never have the opportunity to sign you. If you are Matt Riddle, you're a WWE guy basically from day one. And it does kind of surprise me that the UFC has not done that yet, especially with Fight Pass, which seems obviously set up to create this kind of situation. And I agree with you that when you start thinking about it, it seems awesome from every perspective except the athletes. Because, like, take Invicta, for an example, that was, you know, Saturday night or whenever it was on, on the Fight Pass. Uh, who wouldn't think it was awesome if it was the UFC colon Invicta series, right? Where you still got TJ DeSantis there. You still got Julie Kedzie, Kedzie there. You still got the, the all-female fight card, but suddenly you have UFC production values on there. Like, 
I feel like everyone would think that was pretty awesome if you were able to track an up-and-coming fighter like Alexa Grasso, who's now in the UFC, like Tanya Evinger, uh, and you would see them in their progression all the way through these UFC feeder leagues up to the actual UFC. I think that it would be terrific in terms of like building the brand for everyone except the people who signed those long-term exclusive contracts right. when they had two professional fights and maybe didn't know any better or have any other opportunities. Well, and that would be one instance where having a fighters association could really help you out because it could help institute limits on what kind of contracts you could get people to sign at what point. But, you know, the flip side of that is if you did do something like that for the UFC, um, the, the positive would be probably better controls and better safeguards on the, the amateur circuit of MMA, which depending on where you go, uh, can vary wildly, you know, like you've yeah. seen it, you know, we go to, you go to some shows, you know, you can go to like a, a small show somewhere in like California or something where there's a, a really strong state athletic commission and it's going to be a little better. You go to a, one around here, like in Montana, where there functionally is no state athletic commission, definitely no oversight of any kind of MMA events. Um, and you're just putting yourself in the hands of the promoter, hoping that they care enough to, to run a tight ship. Um, if the UFC kind of got involved in amateur MMA, They'd, you'd probably do a better job of making sure that nobody was getting their, their whole shit broke unnecessarily out there. Right. And obviously this is a discussion that is taking place completely independent of, of the real world ideas that you're dealing with a UFC that appears to be trying to cut overhead right. and costs. Not trying every, to grow right now. Right, at, at every turn. So I'm not sure that like creating a vast network of, of independent organizations under the auspices of the UFC is something that it's interested in now. Uh, but I do think that it, it would be kind of an extraordinary opportunity as a promoter, especially like, you know, if you created, if you had UFC sanctioned championships that these people could win at, at, at the lower level, I don't know if they would be regional or whatever. I don't know if you would have a, like a Midwestern champion, uh, Man. and then that guy would get a shot in the UFC. And see, now I'm excited. See? Talking like, about the mid-Atlantic lightweight champion. Jesus right, Christ. Exactly. I think that it would be, that would be a big deal, but I'm not sure that the current UFC is is ready to do that right now. Uh, next question this week comes from Robert Johnson. He writes, in the wake of the continued, continued ridiculous Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor talk, the most frustrating part is no one can give a good reason for Floyd to take the fight other than, of course, money. Floyd Mayweather is one of the wealthiest athletes alive. He doesn't need money. But the risk of losing means his perfect record is shot and the biggest trash talker today will trash him every chance he gets. If he wins, though, everyone will just say, well, duh. Uh, he won't get any accolades for beating an O&O boxer in a boxing match. Take money off the table. Why on earth would Floyd Mayweather take this fight? Please discuss. Well, why would you take money off the table? Taking money off the table means you're no longer having a conversation about Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> That's right. Or like any other prize fighter for that matter. Like both, Con I mean, Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor ain't dumb, right? Regardless of what Conor McGregor may say in public, he knows that if he gets into a boxing match with Floyd Mayweather, he's probably going to lose. So Floyd Mayweather is in this because he thinks it's an easy way for him to make a lot of money. Conor McGregor is into this because while he knows he's going to lose, he still thinks he's going to make a lot of money. Well, you know, you could convince me that Conor McGregor could talk himself into thinking that he's going to win this. Well, for sure, yeah. You could convince any professional mixed martial arts fighter that he would beat a gorilla in a grappling match also. Right. But And you can clearly, you can convince a lot of mixed martial arts fans uh, that, that Conor McGregor has a good, a surprising number of mixed martial arts fans you can convince. Since we're on this one, and 
And I'm going to jump down to this question from Magum Juggernaut Squad. Who now? You heard what I said. Okay, so like this is a team effort? A whole squad no, is involved in this? No idea, um, but it's it's relevant. With it being a slow week in the world of fisticuffs, how about giving your astute analysis of a potential McGregor-Mayweather throwdown and all the shenanigans that will precede it? Here's the Magnum Juggernaut Squad prediction. Now, this in this, pay attention to this prediction, because it actually is not bad. Think of it more as a game plan than a prediction. One. Connor has a field day in the pre-fight press conferences pointing out Floyd's tendencies to dodge opponents and occasionally punch women. Two, fight starts and McGregor does some spinning karate shit just close enough to Pretty Boy's face to let him know that if this were a quote-unquote real fight, Mayweather wouldn't be so pretty by the end of it. Three, fighters clinch and Connor nonchalantly throws Floyd to the canvas, stands over him and then flashes his patented I'm an Irish lunatic smile. If it's like MMA, he might not even get a point deducted. McGregor goes on to lose a lopsided decision. Four, Fight ends, and we all hear from McGregor. All we hear from McGregor is how he is a guy with no professional boxing fights, just went 12 rounds with a self-proclaimed goat, and that if Floyd were a real man, he would rematch him in the octagon. So what kind of tomfoolery do you guys think Connor will have up the proverbial sleeve? Orate, please. Now that is honestly, like, we, he should. the Magnum Juggernaut Squad should just email this to Connor yes, McGregor. absolutely. Maybe this is a service that the Magnum Juggernaut Squad provides, yes. for all we know. <laughs> Well, we know it's the, the... If it's not, it should be, because that's good. That's well, good stuff right it is, there. It is good. Like, that would all totally work on everybody. The hardest part about that is making it 12 rounds uh, without just getting the shit boxed out of you, if you're Conor McGregor. Um, it would be a great play, all things considered, if you take away the dream that some people are still going to hold on to, that Conor McGregor lands one or two clean left hands on a guy who just doesn't get hit cleanly, even by awesome boxers. And somehow lightning strikes and he knocks Floyd Mayweather out. Yeah. Uh, and like, what did they call it? Shenanigans? Is that what they refer to this Tom as? Tomfoolery. Tomfoolery. Uh, the tomfoolery is the only reason to do this thing, right? If you're not one of the two guys, one of the several guys, I should say, because promoters are going to get a slice of this pie too. Uh, if you're not one of the guys that's going to like directly profit from this, if you are a fan of the sport or a person who's going to watch it, Man, you better be there for the tomfoolery because the actual <laughs> athletic contest stands to not be that competitive. So, uh, your tomfoolery better be off the charts. And I think one of the reasons that this fight actually could still work on pay per view, even though most people would come to it with the idea that it wasn't going to be that competitive, is that Conor McGregor is the best tomfoolerer that we've seen around these parts in a long time. And I think you saw it the other day. When he was at that boxing event and he gave the boxing press just a little glimmer of the tomfoolery. Yeah. And they ate that shit up with a spoon and asked for more. Like, they would love this shit. ESPN would love this shit. Conor McGregor is singularly positioned to create the tomfoolery. Uh, and regardless of whether or not you were going to have a, a complete squash match actually in the, in the ring, uh, the tomfoolery would be epic. It would be off the charts. Which then circles back to the original question here about the money on the table, uh, because that is ha like, just when you put together the pieces, that creates a recipe for a lot of fucking money on the table. It does indeed. Like, you can just imagine that being the biggest pay-per-view ever in the history of anything, because you, you bring together not only the MMA and the boxing worlds, uh, you bring together the people who don't follow either sport, but both know both guys. You bring together people who just love some tomfoolery because yeah, you shenanigans. know <laughs> also shenanigans and or shenanigans. You know McGregor is going to spend the weeks leading up to such a fight 
finding various ways to promise you some tomfoolery if you pay your money on the night. So, you know, that that's going to be absolutely huge. And there's something in it for everybody there. And I think we've learned, you know, throughout our years of, of watching the mixed martial arts pay-per-view business, tomfoolery sells, shenanigans. That's what the people like. Uh, if you, it's almost all shenanigans, really, when it comes to that, uh, whatever the, uh, the percentage of pay-per-view buying customers that are not the people that buy every fight and are not the people that will never buy a fight, but are the people that will only buy some fights, which are, I guess, the target audience of fights, because if you buy all of them, they've already got your money. Yeah. Those people love the fucking shenanigans. Those people are fans of tomfoolery. <laughs> More so than they are of the fights, really. Well, you, you don't have to choose. That's the good thing about this sport. We'll give you violent action and tomfoolery. And God. sometimes we'll, we'll even give you some clear skullduggery. You never know. One of the great things about this sport is that, that goes hand in hand with the shenanigans. More, we need more opportunities to say tomfoolery on this show. Well, you'd think that I never knew that until just this moment. You'd think we would have no problem creating such opportunities. All right, here we have one from David Lauderay, or Lauderette. Um, that's what you get for not telling us exactly how your name is pronounced. Well, all you depressed sons of bitches, spring has been sprung up in this motherfucker. The next two UFC cards are packed full of at least three should-probably-see fights each, and we are basking in the riches of it all. April 8th, we've got DC and Anthony Johnson going full interim while we pretend John Jones isn't a thing, and Chris Weidman takes on Musasi in a bout that would have seemed a lock for the boy Chris, but Sweet and Sassy has been streaking, so who knows what will happen in this one. I mean, right? A mythical fight between two actual contenders. What a concept. As a bonus, I'll watch Will Brooks and Charles O do the damn thing. We'll count that one for sure. Think the action stops there? Catch your breath, you middle-aged geriatric mouth breathers, because April 15th, shit gets lit. DJ takes on the possibly streaking, possibly about to be cut. <laughs> Wilson Heat, Hayes, uh, Rose and Karate Hottie do some shit. Uh, Jacare, whispers, Jacare, Jacare, takes on Bobby goddamn Knuckles. All on Fox GTFO. Did we die and go back to 2007? Or are my expectations just drastically lower than they used to be? <laughs> well, that's a probably a pretty good question, right? It's a very good question. Like Maybe the whole idea of this incredibly underwhelming beginning to 2017 is later when they served us up some meat and potatoes. We would think we were having filet mignon. <laughs> well, I, I would not give them enough credit for like... <laughs> Uh, consciously coming up with that strategy. It but would be a pretty dumb decision to lose a bunch of money <laughs> yes, than to just make us think that the mediocre stuff was Especially great. Especially because if you're just all, all this means is so far you have scheduled a bunch of good stuff. Doesn't actually mean you'll get it. But this question, I gotta say, it did, it felt maybe just because it started off talking about how spring has sprung, but it filled me with the same sort of relief that I've come to know since moving to Montana after growing up most of my life in California and not really realizing that that sense of relief you get when the spring comes and you realize that the long winter is over, this does feel like the mixed martial arts version of that because the beginning of 2017, uh, just powerfully mediocre yep. uh, stuff from the UFC. And now you, you can kind of look ahead on the horizon into like April and see, oh, wait a minute, here we go again. Now you're starting to get excited again about some of these fights and you feel that kind of relief wash over you, like, oh, yeah, I remember this feeling. It's the feeling of, like, 
happy anticipation for the fights to come. Right, yeah. There's no doubt there's going to be an ebb and flow to this thing, and we've been in the middle of a pretty drastic ebb uh, up to this point, and so it is uh, reinvigorating, I guess you would say, to be poised on the cusp of what looks like a a, a run of fun fights, if nothing else. Uh, and like maybe sometimes we forget to 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 couch things in those terms because you know. If there are people that exist inside the so-called MMA bubble, it's us, right? And we exist so far in the MMA bubble that we, especially in the wake of the sale of the UFC to WME IMG, maybe have trained ourselves to uh, to an analyze fights not necessarily by how fun they will be to watch, but like also by how much money they will make and whether everybody's going to get their uh, their profit bonuses or whatever. Uh, and if, if you take that out of the equation and you don't worry about how much money the company is making, because really, why would you? Yeah. Uh, unless you're like Guy Fieri and you got a piece of it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe everything's fine. And, and I assume Guy Fieri's a listener. Absolutely. Of He's course. He's a co-maniac. A lot, a lot of time on his hands, I would think. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Maybe this is this, you know, if all you are basing your, uh, enjoyment on is whether or not these are going to be good fights to watch. I, I agree with you. We're going to, we're about ready to roll straight into another, uh, knock on wood situation where we get a bunch of awesome fights from the UFC right in a row. Yeah. And frankly, that is the only thing that you should, for most people, base their ideas of enjoyment on is whether you will enjoy it. Yeah. And you're right, though, that, that upcoming Fox card, um, that does, seem like that is going if it that holds together the way it's planned right now i mean the main card you got demetrius johnson uh defending this title again in the main event and then you got uh rose namayunas karate hottie jacare bobby knuckles uh jeremy stevens and uh renato moicano oh yeah okay hanato yeah old hanato uh but that's the kind of shit that makes you think like all right Somebody is actually thinking about their ratings on Fox and knowing that that TV deal is going to come up uh, sooner or later. So there you go. Pretty sure Bobby Knuckles was in Onyx, right? Do you remember Onyx back in the early 90s? If I needed to know who was in Onyx, who do you think I would ask? Do you think I would just ask myself or do you think I would call you up? You probably. I'd you probably be sending you a text message and you would you'd jump on that shit. I'd be like, don't you remember that video where Bobby Knuckles and Sticky Fingers were on the Brooklyn Bridge with Biohazard? Remember that? When Biohazard teams up with Onyx? Again, I would defer ah, to you. Over everyone's head right now. Next question this week comes to us from Nicholas Swallow. He writes, UFC 210 is just a couple weeks away uh, where we will see the rematch of Cormier and, Gust- or, and Johnson. The shadow of John Jones continues to loom heavy over the match. Assuming we see Jones challenge the winner, does the UFC roll the dice on Bones in another main event? Uh, I would think yes, right? Like this was a lot of bluster from from Dana White that he was done with uh, with John Jones as a main event attraction after the recent uh uh troubles that he had in the his pullout of the Cormier rematch but you know unless you're going to just hide the light heavyweight title on a, as a co-main event on some other championship card uh I assume you're going to put Daniel Cormier and or or Anthony Johnson depending on who wins this fight uh in a in a super spectacular against John Jones yeah and I would also bet well for one thing my prediction is that whatever fight card that one ends up on, it is the main event, and the co-main event will be surprisingly strong. <laughs> uh, just, just an anticipation of something going wrong. Also, one of the things we learned from those investor documents was the UFC talking about its 
uh, instituting a practice of keeping like a replacement on retainer for some big fights, I would think that this would be one where you'd want to do that. I mean, you you're gonna, you don't have a whole lot to choose from in the light heavyweight division, but what you do have, there's got to be somebody who the UFC is going to call up and be like, hey, we'll give you some money to get in the gym and stay ready for this one just in case. Um, just because you're playing the odds. But there's no way that you don't have those guys main event uh, a fight card. Right. That person is probably Jimmy Manoa, wouldn't you think? The paper boy? Yeah. Because you know he always delivers. So if John Jones can't show up, I mean, you could do a lot worse than Anthony Johnson slash Daniel Cormier against Jimmy Manoa. I guess you could. I mean, if I told you it was either him or Glover Tashira, which one would you rather? Fair point. Okay. Give me the paper boy. Uh, this one from longtime listener, first time question asker, and treat sender many moons ago, Amy Soon. Pronounced Soon. Hashtag nailed it. See, that's how you do it. Yep. You don't leave it to us to guess how your name is pronounced because we will not get that right. I I'm just, a, I think, I believe Amy Soon is, has emailed us before though. I'm, I don't know about this longtime listener, first time question asker thing. Well, maybe she's emailed us, but maybe not to ask a question. Uh, that could be. Maybe could just be. to to make a statement or to launch into an unverified listener mail rant, which, as you know, we get from time to time and enjoy greatly. Anything's possible. I just heard that yet another fighter, Michael McDonald, signed with Bellator after leaving the UFC. It seems like every week in the news and on your show, fighters are making the jump. Though we all know Bellator and the UFC aren't apples to apples, is it fair to say that if the UFC doesn't watch itself or unleash something OMG wow, that Bellator could start to sneak up on the UFC, at least for the hardcore slash semi-hardcores? Discourse, kind sirs, and thanks. Now, it does seem like things are heating up a little bit over at Bellator. Signed Lorenz Larkin. Um, Michael McDonald makes the leap uh, immediately after uh, airing some some grievances against the UFC. And right now, it still seems like Bellator is old guys slash some young guys in some divisions. Um, And it's questionable whether it could really branch out to be some young guys in a bunch of divisions. Uh, But... At least we're seeing some signs of life. We're seeing that Bellator at least is serious about going after some of these people. I just I think that if there's a question of could the could Bellator sneak up on the UFC, it seems to me that barring one or two huge signings, and the problem with that is always, hey, even if you sign John Jones somehow, who the hell does he fight over there? Uh, it does seem like stuff like this over time could gradually chip away. At the UFC, and especially if you can if you can pull it off to where people are leaving the UFC while they're still somewhat close to their prime, going over to Bellator, and then talking about how happy they are there, and talking about maybe even making more money there, uh, and getting better opportunities there, you can gradually erode in fighters' minds that thing that has always existed, where even when you can convince them maybe that it's a better financial deal sometimes to be in Bellator, a part of them is always like, yeah, but I dreamed of being UFC champion. Not of being Bellator champion. Right. Uh, and I've said all along that I thought that it wouldn't necessarily take as many people crossing the aisle as we imagine to make Bellator appear that it is closing ground on the UFC. And I still believe that, uh, even though I'm still not entirely sure that that's the conversation Bellator even wants to be having right now. I think if you're Bellator and you're Scott Coker, your best case scenario uh, is to just kind of hang around, especially right now, considering that the UFC, having just undergone this ownership change and has like kind of an uncertain future and what's happening with the roster and we don't know, et cetera, et cetera. If you're, if you're Scott Coker, you just want to have a steady eddy product that continues to be successful on Spike TV and continues to show 
Viacom, like, hey, this is working. We're doing a good thing here. You can depend on us to fill this time slot uh, on this channel, whatever you want to call it. Right after cops. Right after cops. Uh, and maybe we're, maybe we're breaking even, maybe we're turning a profit. And every once in a while, if we can get on pay-per-view and have a successful show and make a little bit more money, that's just gravy, right? Because if that's who you are as Bellator and you keep picking up a, a Lorenz Larkin, a Michael McDonald, you're right that slowly but surely that gap is, is going to start to close, uh, in perception, if nothing else. And then, on the outside chance that something big does happen with WME IMG and your Bellator, you're ready. You're poised, right? Uh, to, to, to descend on this thing and scoop up all of these people that end up getting released. Uh, and I think this Michael McDonald signing, Ben, to me is, uh, it kind of underscores how good for the, for the athlete and the competitor even a little bit of competition in the marketplace is because six weeks ago. And I was, if I was like, Hey Ben, what do you think about Michael McDonald? You'd be like, Michael McDonald, isn't he two and three in his last five? And I would say, yes, he just got knocked out by John Lineker in July because he tried to do John Lineker stuff with John Lineker and it didn't work out. He ended up getting John Lineker. Suddenly Michael McDonald signs with Bellator and we're all like, Oh yeah, Michael McDonald. All right. He's only 26 years old. He could go over there to Bellator and turn it around, become a, a decent little star on the Spike TV. See? Yeah. So like it works for Bellator and it also improves the situation of Michael McDonald because he's got somewhere else to go. True. Next question this week comes to us from, where am I at here? Uh, Austin Shippey. Let's do this one because it, it plays into what we're just talking about. So today is the first time I he I've heard of Spike's rebranding into Viacom's Paramount channel. Uh, I don't slight Bellator for trying their hand at pay-per-view, but what could this rebranding hold for MMA's runner-up promotion? Uh, I think the obvious answer to this, Ben, is that we don't know, but uh, it does have a different feel to have Spike TV suddenly become the Paramount channel. I don't know what that's going to, how much they're going to change the programming over there, uh, but it does make you wonder where Bellator will end up if we, if it will stay there or if it will jump to a different Vi Viacom station. And it does make the scheduling of this pay-per-view headlined by Chael Sonnen versus Vanderlei Silva seem uh, like the stakes are raised a little bit. And it also makes it seem to me at least uh, not coincidental. Yeah. Uh, what do you think when you hear Paramount channel, what's the, the connotative, Meaning that jumps to your mind. I, to me, it makes me think it's going to be movies. Yeah. Right? Like, it's That's just going to be wall-to-wall -to -wall movies. Where, maybe with the occasional cops uh, marathon. Well, naturally. If you get if you can run cops, you're going to run cops. Um, right. Which, and before, like, Spike, especially even just the name, Spike. Spike TV. That's for guys. Guys are going to bro down right. watching Spike TV. They're going to sit around just spraying themselves with Axe Body Spray down in energy drinks and watching Spike. What was that show they had where they had, like, the warriors throughout history? Yeah, what Deadliest Warrior. Something like that, yeah. That show was just glorious. Uh, they also had A Who Thousand Ways win? to Die. In which, a fight between a pirate and a knight. And it was like, you know, A Thousand Ways to Die. Can you be smothered to death by giant boobs? Yes, that was one of the ways. We will, we will investigate coming up. And then in the next episode, it would be like, you know, could could boobs crush your skull? Like okay, I see a I see a like a feature trend kind of rolling out here. A ninja versus a barbarian. Who would win? What if they both had giant boobs? 
Um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of rebranding comes with that. Um, because obviously, you got something in mind when you go ahead and change the name up like that. Um, I, if you had to guess, let's say this this Bellator pay-per-view actually sticks together the way it's planned right now. Um, do you think that it does, like, you know, normal range successful UFC pay-per-view numbers? Well, it depends on what you mean by normal range. Like, I think it can do Over better. Over 300,000. I think it can do better than the first one that they did. I think you could get more than 100,000. I feel like 300,000 and you're Scott Coker. Take a fucking vacation, man. <laughs> you just, like, you you knocked it out of the park. It, like, I feel like it would be super successful if it got, like, 200,000 buys. Wouldn't you? Like, if it did, like, 250,000 buys, wouldn't you be like, all right. That is kind of the number that we've come to think of as here are the shit-eating wild men of MMA. Like that's and for the UFC, that's a disappointment when you own, when you do a pay-per-view and you only get the shit-eating wild men and you don't get into that next zone that bumps you into like 500,000 and beyond pay-per-views. Um but you're right for for Bellator that would seem like a reasonable goal. And then again, I remember when Scott Coker was talking about how he hoped that that Fedor Mitrione fight would break a million on uh what was then still Spike TV and that seemed also reasonable until the whole thing fell apart, which could totally happen when you book a pay-per-view like this. I'm just looking at the list of Viacom assets uh, on Wikipedia, so you know that it's you can take it to the bank. Uh, here's what I what I'm seeing for television channels from okay. Viacom: CMT, which is okay. obviously country music station, Comedy Central, Epics, Logo TV, which I've never heard of. Is it just a series of logos? MTV and the the fleet of MTV networks. Spike, which is obviously becoming the Paramount station. TV Land and VH1. Also Nickelodeon and BET. Uh, so, man, if you're Bellator, I think you better hope that they find a place for you on the Paramount channel, right? Because none of those others, except maybe MTV, you might be able to make some hay over there. But I'm not seeing, and not like Spike TV is... Uh, it's a great titan of the television world, but like, uh, but it does have kind of a recognizable brand that goes along with what a fight promotion is selling, and it had the the advantage of having been the home of the UFC for years, and so for a lot of people's minds, it was just like, okay, you can just turn it on at any night of the week, and maybe there'll be fights on. Here's what it says about the Paramount Channel. It's a television channel operated by Viacom International Media Networks, which showcases the Paramount Pictures film catalog. Uh, the first Paramount channel was launched in Spain in 2012 and in France in 2013. Uh, so, yeah, and it's coming to uh, to America pretty soon. Looks like it's in a, a bunch of foreign markets. Well, it's but, been uh, a huge hit in Spain. That uh, Now that I've read that, that make, really makes me wonder about where Bellator is going to land, the future of Bellator. I mean, CMT. I guess, there you go. I guess it's kind of a natural fit. Is it my turn or your turn? I think it's my turn. It's your turn. I got one here. Um right along with what we're talking about. From Stephen G. I'm having an increasingly hard time with Bellator's legend circuit, trademark pending. On one hand, it's exciting to see matches between these quote-unquote legends, but these guys are as old as I am and have taken a lot of shots to the head. The CME has previously discussed the possibility of a competitor being seriously injured or even killed in the octagon. I guess I just want to make sure that my excitement for matches like this weekend's Rampage vs. King Mo and Fedor vs. Mitrione bouts isn't a bloodlusty precursor to a defining moment in MMA. Everything is fine, right? Please discuss. Or just say it's fine. Uh, 
Yeah, like, and we definitely, we've had some situations in the recent past where it felt like Bellator was starting to stray a little bit too close to, and in, in some instances, perhaps over the line of like funny nostalgia to danger. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why I kind of liked or felt a little bit more amenable to a fight like Tito Ortiz against Chael Sonnen. It didn't seem like either of those guys, uh, was in immediate danger. Uh, as it turned out, once we got him in there, it turned out neither of them were in immediate danger of athletic greatness either. Uh, but it, <laughs> at least it didn't seem like they were like gonna be on death's door. Uh, and I'm not totally sure how I feel about the Chael Son and Vanderlei Silva fight either, because uh, Vanderlei Silva is obviously a guy who's been knocked out a bunch of times in his MMA career. Well, he seems relatively safe against Chael Sonnen there, though, right? No, it's yeah, it doesn't risk. seem like he's going to incur a lot of additional brain trauma. Uh, but but at the same time, it's it's it strays a little bit, in my opinion, back more. Not that it's a dangerous fight. I think it's a fine fight, in fact. Uh, I'm kind of looking forward to the shenanigans, the tomfoolery. There will be some you want to talk tom about tomfoolery, tomfoolery will be off the charts. Especially when you put Chael Sonnen back on pay-per-view, now he does have something to sell you. Remember, right. that was his. Yeah. That was why he didn't go all out. Uh, that, and so he, he made it us. clear that he just wanted to get the Tito fight over with so he could get to the Vanderlei Silva fight. My counter to this, and I also, I share the concern sure. that, like, hey, yeah. we might be, like, joking our way right into a tragic incident, and then we'll all feel like assholes. Uh, but I think you're far more likely to end up with a really bad scenario uh, if you're doing the Kelvin Gastelum versus Vitor Belfort kind of fights as opposed to Chael Sonnen versus Vanderlei Silva. Yeah. Like, not that, you know, anytime you put guys over a certain age, like, the risk increases um, and even more increases with fights like Kimbo versus Dada 5000, where you just don't even know if these guys have been training. And for all you know, they might just have a heart attack in the damn cage. Uh, but at least when you got two old guys who are around the same point, the the risk of damage goes up a little bit higher, but still at so somewhat commensurate level as the like unlikelihood that they will be able to do damage. You know, like they they're not as able to hurt each other anymore even though they are more easily hurt. Um, so at least it kind of keeps it in some balance. I think you really get in trouble is when you've got a 25-year-old dynamo in there against the guy who is really fading. Right. You've got one guy who can still really hurt and the other guy who really can't take it like he used to. Then you could end up in a terrible situation. Or you run Kimbo Slice and Dada 5000 out there. Just a couple guys who probably shouldn't shouldn't be in the cage at that moment. Well, hopefully Bellator learned that lesson because they really got off like relatively easy they in sure retrospect. Uh, let's do one more and then we got to get out of here for this week. This one from, from Scott Collin. He writes, with the hashtag ain't shit going on going on, and then it just says dot, 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 dot. Nathaniel Diaz? Question mark? <laughs> What's all that about? Since September 2011, his record is six wins and four losses. That doesn't seem to be the best of the best kind of numbers. If you believe Dana White, he's been turning down fights, apparently for a $20 million fight, presumably with the Irishman, to complete the trilogy. Uh, I get that he has a, an FU kind of attitude, has funky hand gestures in the cage, talks in the cage, he's unusual. That's it, at least for me. So con convince me to be a Diaz fan. What am I missing? And then it says, keep on trucking. Well, one thing I have to say to Scott Cullen here is if you haven't got it by now, then you're yeah, probably not going to get it. That's probably right. That's probably right. I do feel like the Diaz brothers were an acquired taste, though. Uh, sure. At least for me, like you see what you see the Diaz brothers brand of 
of what they do. And at first, I, I feel like I was, I didn't really get it. And then after I watched Nick and Nate do the damn thing for a while, it kind of dawned on me. Like, not only do they, uh, consistently put on awesome, action-packed, fun-to-watch fights, uh, they all, as crazy as they sound when they talk, this is what really put it over the top for me, Ben. As crazy as they sound, if you, if you really hone in on what they're saying, Almost always they they are right. There is um, there is like a yeah a cohesive message sense. there. I'm, uh, maybe not making sense is not the right term. Well, but yeah, like, you have to trim out all the stuff that doesn't make sense, right? And the stuff that counter like acts all the other stuff that they said. But you can find like a weird uh like it's like kind of listening to a, an oracle or something. And like if you can really zero in on something, you can, then you'll have a moment of enlightenment where you realize like that Nick Diaz really is like the the hero coming in with the anti-bullshit in a lot of ways. And Nate Diaz, like, kind of the same. You know, a lot of stuff they've said has ended up being borne out. Like, the title stuff is a fairy tale kind of thing. Like, now look at the way the UFC even looks at the title stuff. It's just... uh, And, like, they have seen aspects of the fight game for what it is before the rest of us did. And, like, Nate Diaz even now, like, right now, uh, the, the thing about him turning down fights, you know, and Dana White wants to talk about him turning down fights... If I'm Nate Diaz, I would turn down most fights that you offer me right now. For one thing, like, he got a big payday. He, it's not like he needs to go fight to keep the, the lights on or anything right now. And also, like, he realizes that right now there is that potential for another Conor McGregor fight, another huge fight. And if he just accepts some other fight, what are you going to give Nate Diaz right now? Yeah. You know, you're going to give him what, like, what maybe he could headline a fight night for you. Maybe he could be, like, the, the third fight in a, or the co-main event maybe of a pay-per-view. Um, get on the Fox card, something like that against, you know, like the number six length ranked lightweight or something like that. That's just, there's no appeal in that for him. The only way to go is down, uh, if he takes a fight like that. If he hangs around, keeps being the Diaz brother enigma that he knows how to be, keeps poking at Conor McGregor from afar and waits his turn, then maybe, you know, another huge payday rolls around. Like he's playing the game that they have taught him to play, right. whether they knew they were doing it or not. Yeah, one and one of the first pairs of guys to have done that, as you mentioned. Like, I feel like the after watching these guys exist in this space for so long, the MMA world has eventually kind of come around to the idea that they were right, kind of all along. Uh, and one of the other things I like about the Diaz brothers is that they appear to be realists about what is happening here, which I think uh, you know brings us back to the earlier question about how we make peace with this sport. But like, these are a couple of guys that. Uh, are upfront about the fact that what they do is hard and it hurts and they don't like it all the time. And if they are going to do it, you are goddamn going to pay them a lot of money, which again, I think they're right about that. And, and, uh, from a certain point of view is kind of refreshing as compared to, uh, you know, I'll just take whoever Sean Shelby and Dana White want me to fight next. Right. Type situation. I'm not trying to be out here fighting these hitters. That's right. Uh, would you be excited to fight Anderson Silva? Is one of my favorite things that Nick Diaz ever said when someone <laughs> asked him if he was excited about the fight. Uh, anyway, that's probably going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back to normal next week. Look ahead to, uh, UFC 210. Uh, we also got a Bellator thing happening, right? King Mo and Rampage is about to go down. Uh, so we will discuss that. We'll talk about, uh, Anthony Johnson and Daniel Cormier. And, uh, after that, we assume we will be back on a normal schedule, uh, until the next time. Ain't shit going on. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Did you know that in that conference call where uh, Rampage revealed that he did not know what weight class he was fighting King Mo in, he also accused King Mo of fat-shaming him? 
No, I did not know that. It's, uh, it's an interesting move for Rampage Jackson to accuse anyone else of anything shameful. He did that right after he made it. 